Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that does not promise answers at all, but definitely guarantees solidarity. Um, Today's topic is one that I am really, really excited about, and I am lucky enough to have a dear friend as my guest today. We're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. Uh, and with me is the fierce and fabulous Celine Bossart. Hi. Hi. Can you introduce yourself and uh, tell us who you are? Tell us what you do. Yes. Tell us what your favorite color is. My name is Celine Bossart. I am a Brooklyn-based freelance journalist, and I cover largely the spirits and bar industries, but also wine and travel. Um, my favorite color is <laughs> dark teal. Mm. Okay, so you can't see Celine, obviously, but those of you that have seen Celine and those of you that will after this podcast, just she has the most impeccable taste. So dark teal was the most unsurprising answer (laughs) ever. It was great. Okay, so let's get right in. Um, Imposter syndrome. It is defined as the persistent inability inability being the key word, to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one's own efforts or skills. Um, We've talked about imposter syndrome a little bit. It's pretty insidious. It feels pretty gross. And it also seems like a lot more people are talking about it openly in ways that were not happening before, especially as careers blossom. We are so interconnected because of social media. Um, So... I guess my first question for you is, do you feel like you have ever experienced imposter syndrome? I definitely have. And I think a lot of my freelance journalist colleagues and friends can relate because as a freelance writer, you are so out there on your own, really. Um, You're kind of just figuring things out for yourself. And a lot of us didn't go to school for journalism. You kind of find your way. A lot of freelance writers kind of find their way sort of out of nowhere, at Mm -hmm. least from, you know, the accounts that I've heard and my own too. Um, And I think when you combine all of those factors, it's sort of the perfect storm for imposter syndrome. Um, You know, you're always kind of second guessing yourself, like, am I doing this right? Like, I'm frequently looking up, you know, the, the handbook of, you know, the the ethics handbook for journalists, because Mm. I'm like, if I, I guess if I'm adhering to our ethics, our ethics guidelines, then I'm good to go. But I'm always kind of second guessing myself, you know, and I'm kind of constantly reminding myself, well, my duty is to report the truth first and foremost. And if I'm doing that, then everything will, should theoretically fall into place. Um, but it's a constant game of telling, you know, reminding myself of certain things. Um, talking to colleagues and realizing that we're all kind of going through the same thing, which I think is characteristic of this generation. We're very in tune with our feelings and we're Mm -hmm. very vocal about them. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Maybe we seem like we're more emotional or, uh, overly expressive, overly expressive (laughs) or even, you know, troubled. Like if you ask, I guess, like, older generations maybe they think we're a little more messed up than they are but we're just the ones who are talking about it agreed they don't really talk about it in the same way that we do and i think there's kind of a privilege in that definitely definitely agree tell us a little bit about your 
background. Um, you know, you say you didn't go to school for journalism. So like, what did you go to school for? If you went to school, what kind of, what brought you to New York? Um, you know, what are the things that kind of like drive you and your, and your goals? Mm -hmm. I was born in Secaucus, so not far from the city. Um, I grew up in a really small, very conservative town in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. Fun. Um, I came back to New York. I graduated high school early because mainly I wanted to get the fuck out of, you know, small town America. And there's nothing wrong with small town America, but it just wasn't for me. The the ideals were not for me. Um, I felt like I needed to go back to kind of where... I, I felt like being born in this major metropolitan area, I felt I felt like I was missing out on what I was what I could have had if my family had stayed here. So I came back to go to the Fashion Institute of Technology, mm-hmm. FIT in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I had a three year plan. I was gonna get my my undergrad in three years, which I did. Um, so I spent my first year here in New York. And then I went to Italy mm. for a year. And then I came back and I finished my, my last year at FIT. Um, my major was international merchandising management with a concentration on Italian language. Okay. So pretty random. But I ended up getting into media. Um, I went to GQ magazine. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my introduction to media and also the catalyst for my realization that I didn't want to go in the, into the fashion industry. Um so I went to GQ. I was there for a little while. I started as an intern, stayed on as a freelancer, and then I went to MTV. Okay. And I was in their integrated marketing department. And that was a really cool experience. It was a much healthier environment than Condé Nast. Mm. That I was at Condé Nast during, like, intern gate, mm-hmm. um, which <laughs> I was heard about really this. traumatizing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, class action, the whole nine. It was really not a great environment. Uh, but I learned a lot. I grew from it. And then it was it was really great for me to go to a totally different business with a much healthier environment. Um, but it sort of solidified, okay, media is definitely for me. And I just ultimately ended up as a freelance drinks writer, which has been amazing. Can we talk about that too? Because <laughs> I mean, like I said before, you have impeccable taste, impeccable Thank style. You. you are incredibly well-traveled. You're incredibly well-read, you have experienced a lot of life and a lot of the world, which I feel like is, that's kind of the perfect storm for somebody that wants to be a creative, that wants to be a writer, because your job is to also, you know, you see the world through your perspective and you share that perspective while reporting the truth, like you were talking Mm -hmm. about. So I'm so fascinated. And I actually don't think we've ever talked about how you switched over to do a larger focus on the drink space, Mm -hmm. because that's like a very specific choice. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of fun in booze, but like... Totally. Yeah. Like, what drove that? I I went to an agency mm-hmm. where I was working full-time. I think, you know, it's really hard to just be a freelance writer. You kind of, for me at least, I eased into it mm-hmm. because it's it's kind of scary to be out there on your own and figure out how to make a living You have no protection. Alone. Like, yeah. you're an island. Yeah. So I was at an agency for the first two and a half years of my career where I was uh, working in the digital media, well, the, the marketing department of a luxury concierge firm. Okay. And I ended up kind of just handling the all the digital media within the marketing team of that firm. And so I had a lot of creative freedom, which was awesome. Like it was very structured because, you know, it's an agency and it was B2B. And mm-hmm. so the, the 
guidelines were very specific um, for the space that I was working in, but I had a lot of creative freedom in that, you know, if I was covering, we, we covered kind of like the luxury, like the best of the best in every lifestyle category. So I had the freedom to like, if I was covering dining, fine dining, that's mm-hmm. a pretty broad category. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would kind of go into that space and say, well, this bar is really interesting. I'm really drawn to this bar. Mm. I'm going to write about the bar program. And I just kept finding that I had an affinity for the bar programs in the luxury dining space. Um, So that's kind of how I got... There's such an allure. Like, you know this. There's such an allure to the drink space. It's like It's really fucking sexy. Yeah, and to be a woman in this space, obviously, we learn very quickly (laughs) that it's, you know... It's, it's super really easy hard. and <laughs> super yeah. easy. There are no problems. But <laughs> as much as I saw that, mm-hmm. I also saw an opportunity because people, I felt like people would, for as much as people might underestimate me, they would also remember my name. Yes. Because I, I'm a woman. Yes. So it's a double-edged sword, but I kind of, you know, for all the shit that we deal with, I also felt I was clinging to this optimism that people would it would be a differential advantage in a way in certain ways I can totally I I can totally see that well and one of the things that I respect the most about you is that you are not apologetic about being a disruptor like I think from from the beginning of the time when you landed on my radar to now and we've been friends for a couple years now um just the way that you choose to put your work out there and the way that you choose to move through the different spaces that you occupy is disruptive in a really impactful way. And I think it becomes more impactful because you are a woman. Um, So there's like, there's so much, there's so much talent and so much like brains. And then you're just like this stunningly beautiful woman that's like, cool, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be really good at it. So sit and wait. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, So speaking of being a woman, how do we, I think I will go out on uh, on a limb and say that the concept of imposter syndrome, um, it impacts everybody to a certain extent. I know a lot of men that um, have dealt with imposter syndrome, but I do find that it tends to impact women more negatively um, perhaps because we have been programmed to preemptively question ourselves to, um, you know, I mean, there are like studies done about how women will feel like they need to be at 99% before they go apply for a job. Mm-hmm. Whereas the average dude is like, I'm at like 67. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just going to figure it out. Um, so how do you feel like that has kind of impacted you as you move through your day to day, especially as a freelancer, like there's no guarantee of anything, right? So like as you're pitching things, as you are coming up with ideas, as you are going through whatever your process is in terms of putting a story together, um, how has that kind of reared its head a little bit? I think as a woman and a freelancer, I've learned to really pick my battles Hmm. because if I spent my entire career writing about surface level things that didn't actually impact this industry in a positive way. Mm-hmm. If I were just writing, you know, oh, top five aged rums to drink, you know, this summer or top 10, you know, tiki cocktails to drink. The that's listicle not machine. Really, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. not really, who is that really helping mm. besides driving clicks for a publication? In the long run, what are we actually, what is our larger purpose? 
so I think about our larger purpose a lot, especially as, you know, I'm a, I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual white woman. And so I think about a lot um, what my responsibility is as an advocate for the industry, because if I'm not advocating for women and people of color and marginalized communities, then what am I doing, really? Mm. What is the point? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that that in itself can, you know, it's not easy and I have to find a balance between, you know, this is another picking my battles kind of thing. I have to find a balance between talking about the right issues and talking about them in the right way that isn't imposing my views on anyone, but is advocating for people without assuming things. Um, So it's a really difficult space to navigate. And so that can weigh kind of heavy. Mm -hmm. You know, I wake up every morning and I'm like, am I doing the right thing? And again, that's, that is how that man, how imposter syndrome manifests for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But, um, remind me what the question was. You answered it. That was great. Yeah, no, totally. It was just, I mean like the, just the general manifestation. Cause I think everybody, everybody reacts to their own version of imposter syndrome differently and everybody channels that energy that can feel so heavy differently. Um, and it's always fascinating to me to kind of observe the people in my network and how they handle it and how they deal with it. And you, you know, you're very publicly visible. So it's almost like, I feel like you get the double whammy, triple whammy, if you will, of like dealing with all these things and dealing with life and like being a woman and trying to like push forward and have an impact in a male driven space while also just being very visible. You know, I mean, like you have a massive social following, like you've you've done stuff that is has made waves Um, and it's like as impactful as that is. If I think if that was me, I would be it's almost like you kind of start looking over your shoulder. Oh, yeah. After a while. Yeah. Every time you write something or something of yours is published, you are putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And you really don't have that many defenses. Like, I'm at the point where I don't, I don't really, I can't look at the comment section of my articles anymore. Yeah. It's just, like, why am I going to do that to myself? (laughs) Right. right. Um, Because it's a lot of people out there who happen to mostly be middle-aged white dudes questioning me, questioning my validity, assuming that I'm a man, first of all. They don't they don't even read the article, they just look at the headline the headline and they'll you know. It's really wild. But because um, <laughs> nobody reads I've anymore. Seen it all. Like they, yeah. They look at the picture on the on the article and just assume that they know everything yeah, it's about like, what's oh, happening. Yeah. It's it's a lot of I get a lot of doubt. I get a lot I'm questioned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my again, you put yourself out there and it's kind of like you just throw it out into the world and you put your hands up. And you're like, I just got to handle whatever comes at me. Yeah. That's all you can really do. Well, and that's the bravest thing to do, I think. I mean, how many people do we know that will never put themselves out there because it's just too frightening? Like the space that we live in and the way people communicate and the way people like mob mentality, especially in the digital space is just so, and we see these conversations every day. Right. Like it just becomes a pylon. And so many people are probably like, why though? (laughs) Like, Yeah. Well, it's. I think it's split down the middle why people don't speak out about certain things, especially Mm -hmm. journalists. Mm -hmm. A, it's fear, Mm -hmm. but B, I do think it's also largely it's privilege because there are a lot of people out there who don't actually have to, Mm -hmm. they don't, they've never lived an experience where they had to fear for their safety or, Mm -hmm. um, feel like they had to 
like you and I were talking about earlier, scream to be heard. Yeah. And so because of that, people don't think to put themselves out there or on their own behalf or on other people's behalf. Um, they don't have to do this because they don't thing. have to. It's, it's very, comfy. they've never had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can just be comfortable and that's they're they're content with that. So that's, what is that like? That must be really know. nice. <laughs> um, so I think, oh God, imposter syndrome, like we, we have the definition of imposter syndrome, right? And I don't think it's treated as like a clinical thing. I don't think it's, it's seen or treated as like a mental health or a mental illness thing. I think it's something that we kind of inherently develop because, you know, there will be something that questions you, that causes you to question yourself or traumatizes you at a young age. And so the seed is planted and you then question your value in certain areas of your life for the rest of your life, however, however long that lasts. So how do you kind of overcome that? Because you are obviously very talented. You're very good at what you do. You have the you have the moral compass of a saint so you you know even i'm sure you objectively know these things you are aware of the fact that you have a gift which is why you keep working at this and keep working to get better um and you probably are aware that you're a good person because you question yourself um so i wonder what are things that you lean on to get some space and distance and maybe a little bit of peace when you have those moments where you feel kind of obligated to like question your worth. Yeah. I, I think I have a couple, I keep a couple things that, you know, in my, in my corner, my boyfriend is, is a really big support system for Mm -hmm. me and he's my sounding board. And he's also a 10 year veteran, 10 plus year veteran of this, of the bar industry. And Mm -hmm. so if it's even if it's something as small as like, hey, would, how much would you dilute this, or would you like shake this or swizzle this or whatever, uh, I turn to him and he's really supportive and really helpful. Um, we love you, Eric. <laughs> he's the best. <laughs> um, so turning to him, even for little things, again, has been really helpful to me. But also for bigger things, I'm like, am I coming at this the right way? Mm. Am I fighting the right? battle am I like am I being level-headed in this because again Mm. as a journalist we like our job is to be as objective as possible Mm -hmm. so even though humans are innately emotional beings you have to like detach that a little bit yeah (laughs) so it's helpful for me to be able to physically turn to him he's like when he's right there and say in the moment ask him what I'm a question that's directly related to how I'm feeling in that moment, have him respond right away, and then we talk about it. And so that's been really helpful. Again, also the, you know, having a network of freelance journalists that I talk to every day, we have our own little chat group that we use every single day. Um, We talk about our own personal struggles and things that we're writing and just everyday stuff, which is really great. Um, And then again, resources, that we have at our disposal, like the ethic, like ethical guidelines and case studies and things like that. Those are really, those are really helpful too in certain cases. Just grounding yourself in reality yeah. and in just, yeah, and in the truth, which is really, really wonderful, especially if, yeah, I mean, because I would imagine it would be difficult when you are in the thick of writing something that may or may not be. A, a passionate topic for you that you still have to kind of work very hard to be objective at having somebody on the outside that's that you feel safe with yeah um or a group of people or whatever that might be that you feel safe with to 
reflect back to you what you're kind of putting out in the world that's probably really, really valuable. Um, have you ever found that an instance of imposter syndrome has gotten so pervasive that it actually kind of made you feel like your creativity was inhibited? Maybe not so much creativity, but productivity. Mm. I have days where I just, you know, you and I were talking about this, but I feel like I could just lose my shit at any moment <laughs> because I'm so overwhelmed with yeah. everything that I have on my plate. Um, and sometimes it's not volume, but it's the weight of a subject maybe that I'm covering. Mm -hmm. um, I react to stress in a way that's all, like I can become really avoidant. So mm. it might take me weeks to answer a simple email asking me a simple question. And I feel so shitty about that. And it's this, you know, it's this cyclical problem that's like, I'm so stressed out about answering this one damn email. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to answer it. And then I'm just going to become more stressed. Like I know it's there. I know it's in my inbox, mm -hmm. but I'm just not going to answer it because I, I feel like I'm going to explode. I can't, I'm stressing out so hard about this email. It's just easier to just ignore it. Yeah. For a long time. Yeah. Which is really not good. That it's might be good. what and we has, call burnout. <laughs> yeah. And that's, but, you know, coming, that's come back to bite me a couple times. Sure. And, I, and so I slowly am, I'm learning to just rip the bandaid off mm -hmm. more and more. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it, it affects my productivity more than it does my creativity. Mm. There's, I think maybe, maybe it's more discipline that it requires to do my job than creativity. I think, of course, you need a certain level of creativity to tell stories. But I think a lot of it is also discipline. Time management. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's more formulaic than people realize writing an article. Mm -hmm. You have word count to stick to. You have to take a lead and give it to your reader in a way that's smart and effective. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as creative a process as like writing a novel or, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Hmm. Um, do you feel like, and you kind of answered this before, but do you feel like there is enough support amongst women in our industry that can help kind of bolster against and combat the effects of imposter syndrome or the effects of feeling less than, not enough? No, I don't think there are. Yeah. I don't think that, like you said, imposter syndrome isn't something that's talked about as much as other mental health issues. Mm. Um, I don't, I think this is something we're just going to have to keep talking about and normalize. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point we'll start to see like sobriety is a perfect example. Sobriety in this industry, mm. the more, you know, for a long time, it wasn't really talked about at all. Yeah. And then we start talking about it more. And that's why I wrote that article mm -hmm. with you, um, was to help contribute to the normalization of, sobriety in our industry and the many shades of gray that come yeah. with it <laughs> yeah it's certainly not black and white like i don't have to tell you that but like yeah. many of the other issues that we that we deal with um well and also no no women are talking about it that's the thing it's like that's always my question is where where are the women where are the women lifting each other up and taking care of each other where are the women talking about sobriety where are the women talking about diversity amongst brand teams like wh where are they yeah and there's a few there's a few but it's not pervasive yeah, I I mean, yeah, I think this is just something that we're going to have to keep talking about mm -hmm. and 
drawing awareness around Mm -hmm. and um, letting people know that it's a real thing and that, I mean, some people might be dealing with it and not even realize that they have. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it just takes someone else talking about it and normalizing it for them to realize, oh, hey, like I can relate to that. I just didn't know what to call it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think right now, do we have enough support around this issue for men or women? No, not really. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if we keep talking about it, like many other issues that we've dealt with, if we just keep talking about it, then we'll see more people I mean, try to rally around it. Let's look at those issues a little bit because there's, I don't think that any one issue is too far distanced from another, you know, so whether it's imposter syndrome or it's racism or it's misogyny or Mm -hmm. it's backstabbing or whatever, um, you've kind of experienced some things lately that when we had spoken privately, you were very concerned about the alienation that comes with that. But now it seems like you have taken a different, you've developed a different perspective. Yes. So back in April, I had an abortion. Mm And I, in the moments, you know, anyone who's had an abortion can relate to all the different emotions that you feel. I think... Oh, it's a feelings buffet. Yeah. It's like not, it's not <laughs> it, fun. And it really depends on like so many different factors. Like we don't all feel the same feelings, Mm-mm. but we feel a bunch of different feelings. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say that. Um one of the things that I felt like, and and I love talking about this because now I feel really free to, after, you know, after going through it and then realizing how good it felt to, to confide in someone and say, hey, I had an abortion mm-hmm. and s- see how that person responds. So many times, if, if, it, if it was a woman that I was talking to, so many times she would say, I've had one too. Uh And we don't have those conversations because it's not normalized enough for Mm -hmm. us to feel welcome to talk about it. Right. So the more I started talking about it, the more I started realizing if we just talk about it more, we contribute to normalizing this issue so that other women who go through it or have gone through it and have been silent for years about it can feel more welcome to talk about it. So I'm I'm really like... I feel so lucky to be able to share that story and not really fear for my life because mm-hmm. I live in a major metropolitan area. Yeah. I wasn't hassled by protesters. I went to the Bleecker Street Planned Parenthood. I was not shamed by protesters. There was nobody outside. Yeah. I didn't need like an escort. Yeah. You know, it was, I think, a lot easier for me. It was a lot, it was an experience that was a lot less harrowing than a lot of women go through in other parts of the country and And some women don't survive yeah so I think I hold a lot of privilege in that I live in an area where I'm able to have that experience with a minimized you know the the negative the negative experiences that surround that experience were minimized Mm -hmm. and um, I feel the more and more I talk about it the, the more free I feel to, to keep doing so. But I recognize that not every woman is in that position. And I think that's why we stay silent about it mm-hmm. so much, you know? Well, and it's treated as a liability too. That's the thing is I think in general, the 
the and again like this is not to say that men cannot suffer from certain things but the the hands that have been dealt people that are that are female identifying and the, the things that we have to go through um you know whether it's being open about sexual history and abortion or being a victim of assault or sobriety issues or mental health or whatever it is we are not yet seen as brave for talking about these things we are not yet seen for being as powerful as we are to have the ability to talk about those things we're seen as a liability Mm-hmm. We're seen as rocking the boat in an uncomfortable way because, oh my God, these topics are so taboo. Why would you share them yeah, about yourself? Yeah, or as radical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> we have the ability to bring life into the world. That's fucking radical. Yeah. And everybody's really, everybody's really quick to capitalize on uh, the the narrative surrounding like your ability to be a parent, but when it comes to taking care of women from a mental and emotional and physical standpoint. Yeah, it stops when it, it gets there. Totally stops. Yeah. It totally stops. But I think I mean th- these are not easy things to talk about. So if you are at a point where you have the ability to shine a light on it in whatever way that looks like, whether it's talking to a small group of people that you trust or whether it's putting it out there for people to read about or share or whatever in a public forum, I think that's an incredibly powerful thing because you you never know who can see that and you mm-hmm. never know who you might be impacting, who might right. be too scared to talk about their experience. Like I, I talk a lot about being a victim of rape and domestic violence and it every single time there is somebody that reaches out to me privately that you would never know right. has experienced the same thing and it's just not, it's not fair for these things to be silenced. So the fact that you're like, hi, I live in this very public way. (laughs) And also, here's this story that I'm sharing with you now. I think that's much more of a gift than it is anything else. Yeah, I actually, I think even maybe like a couple days after I had my abortion, I, you know, I kind of like pushed myself to go out, like be out and about and socialize because I had been so sick before the procedure that I just I was a shut-in for like weeks Mm. I it was I it was the worst I felt in my life um but after the after I had the abortion you know I I started going out again and I I was like what would happen if I just you know and and this is all industry events Mm -hmm. um what would happen if I if I spoke to someone I'm friends with and just said hey I just had an abortion and it feels really good to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I had no idea how people would react. I was like, I just need to, I feel compelled to talk about it. Yeah. Let me just see what happens. Um, because I wished, like, lying on that table mm. during my procedure, I, I opted for the uh, surgical procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt, I was not alone. Like, you know, my boyfriend was there for me. My mom knew, my sister mm-hmm. knew, my best friend knew. Um, so I wasn't alone in that sense, but I felt really alone in the sense that I did not know one single woman who had had an abortion. So I couldn't ask anybody, how oh. much did that hurt? How much does it hurt? Like, what am I in for? Like, I chose to stay awake during the procedure so that I could talk about it. Wow. Um, so yeah, I was locally sedated and so because I, I wanted yeah. to absorb every element because I didn't want really any, you know, I wanted to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I, I I was kind of very... Um, 
I don't want to say like like calculating is the wrong word. I I was very methodical about how I wanted my experience to go mm-hmm. and thinking about how I wanted to use it after. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I I started talking about it like slowly mm-hmm. and it happened to be with industry friends. And I felt so so embraced and so like it was another one of those things where it's like, hey, I had an abortion. Me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was kind of, re- it reaffirmed that belief that I had that was like, if we just start normalizing certain things that we deal with, then that can only really be good for our community. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So... Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I appreciate you. Absolutely. I will be, you know, you and I were talking about the article that I'm writing Mm -hmm. about this. This will be for Pulp Magazine, which is a new publication backed by Medium. So if anybody else wants, if anybody wants to read, you know, the story of my experience, that will be out probably in the next couple of months. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Keep us posted. I will. Um, So thank you for hanging out and chatting with me and sharing your story. If people want to keep up with you, where can they find you? So I'm mostly on Instagram. Uh, My handle is Celine, C-E-L-I-N-E, boss, B as in boy, zero S-S. Yes. And I have a website with my work. It's CelineBosar.com. Again, my first name is C-E-L-I-N-E. B as in boy, O, S as in Sam, S as in Sam, A-R-T as in Tom. <laughs> That's my last name. So CelineBosar.com. And yeah, Google me. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll find other stuff. If you know. <laughs> it's so good. Thank you so much for taking some time. Yeah, you, you are a lovely human and I adore you. Um, thanks everybody for listening. And if you want to keep up with me, I am on Instagram at the Joanna C. And we will catch you later. Bye. Bye.